notice that dessert is now being served. Canute has, uh, has uh, wanted to tell me to give you fair warning that one of each of the brownies at your table has been <laughs> medically altered. And uh, so it's, it's a bit of an experiment. We hope you don't mind. The topic, the topic for next week is safe injection sites. And that is... Uh, not to be confused with an upcoming topic that we're thinking of, which is the uh, safe injection kits, which the Arches group in Lethbridge gives to uh, people who have drug problems. So this will be interesting next week. People who want to come and see whether or not Lethbridge needs a safe injection site or what the uh, story will be, please join us and bring someone who's interested. Bring an addict with you, please. <clears throat> the... Uh, the SACPA sessions can be found on the website, sacpa.ca. Uh, Shaw broadcasts them. They're on YouTube. There's an audience suggestion box outside the uh, doors here for people that would help us find interesting speakers and topics. And we're going to go to questions at that microphone over there, which Sheila will be in charge of. So if anyone has any questions for our presenter... Uh, go to the mic, introduce yourself with your name, keep your comments brief, and we'll, uh, we'll ask Dr. Abiola to come back to the microphone and give us some more great information. Welcome him back, would you please? Okay. I don't need to read anymore, so I'll take these off. Yes, ma'am. Yes, my name is uh, Marlene Applegate, and I'm very, very naive on this subject. Mm -hmm. However, it's in my bucket list. <laughs> okay. I, w I have two questions. My brother recently went uh, for a, qu a quad bypass surgery, and his doctor told him to quit smoking immediately. Mm -hmm. And he said, can I continue to smoke marijuana? And she said, yes. How come? Okay, um... That depends on what his condition is, whether or not he has something like atrial fibrillation or the medications he's also taking with it. The risk with something like smoking uh, is uh, hypercoagulation, so his blood might actually clot a little bit more uh, depending on the other medications he's taking. So it could be due to a drug interaction. Okay. Yeah. And my second question is, the kids that are smoking, does it affect their brain anyway, like at age 14? It does. Now, I heard a, another question about this, and I want to get into it just so I can kind of be proactive about it. The biggest issue that a lot of people have, and this is not uh, people fear-mongering, this is legitimate, is the risk of schizophrenia or psychosis in young people, particularly young males, using cannabis. Has anyone here heard about that? I'm seeing a few. Oh, hands, hands everywhere. You guys are all very well informed. Let me just speak about this just a little bit. So in 1984, there was a doctor named Dr. Hunt, and he was able to correlate THC-positive urine with higher rates of schizophrenia and psychosis. Now, his science wasn't wrong, but as we know, correlation does not equal causation for these type of things. So what they found now that we were able to do genetic mapping is that there's something called the COMT gene, and that affects dopamine. Think of dopamine as the neurotransmitter we have in our brains, uh, where too much of it can lead to schizophrenia. Now, using cannabis, especially in young people, sensitizes the brain to the dopamine that's already there. So what do we know from this? Uh, to vary that COMT gene, a lot of it is genetic. So people are not taking into account family history or age of first use. It is multifactorial. It doesn't mean that adolescence plus cannabis equals schizophrenia. If they have a genetic variation in a first-degree relative, 
if they have started using cannabis at an early age, uh, and if they're using a potent product, and Health Canada has put caps on how potent cannabis can be, that's going to be sold in Canada, and that it is already available. These three things, it's a multifactorial issue. These three things can lead to the precipitation of schizophrenia or psychosis. So it's not as simple as a lot of people think. At the clinic, we do screen for first-degree relatives, drug interactions, how early they've been using cannabis, and if it's not going to be conducive to their health, uh, sorry, to their health, rather, uh, we give them alternative forms, not cannabis. So it's not for everybody, but we do need to be aware that uh, young people should not be using it if they have risk of schizophrenia or psychosis so again a first-degree relative with schizophrenia or psychosis if they've been using it previously at an early age to sensitize the brain to dopamine and if they've been using very potent product so we all need to be aware of this it's the same thing like with alcohol certain people have a genetic predisposition to things like alcoholism or certain uh very uh, damaging diseases and we need to be as proactive as we are with alcohol as we are with cannabis so uh, so a kid that is uh, diagnosed bipolar mm-hmm. and is told to smoke mm-hmm. cannabis does that make sense it matters if they're bipolar one or bipolar two it gets very very complicated so but but can't but uh bipolar and mania is not like schizophrenia they're very different in their uh their ideology sir my name is uh knut peterson uh thanks very much for driving down in a speedy fashion this morning from edmonton <laughs> you got here in good time i'm sure uh, i got some photo radar tickets on the way here but whatever it's fine uh, my question relates to uh, once cannabis becomes legal in Canada next year, middle of next year, do you think there will be enough supply uh, oh, to, 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 for the medical marijuana users to actually uh, uh, be able to get their supply? You're asking a better question than the MLAs asked yesterday, so hats off to you. That's a great question, and that needs to be addressed. So... Uh, I'm going to say, just given what happened in Nevada, Nevada went legal for uh, cannabis. Within four days, the whole state was out completely. Uruguay, uh, yeah, I believe it was Uruguay, uh, had it recreationally available. Within one day, a whole country was out of it. And we're legalizing federally. This is not just going to be Alberta. This is going to be everything. I'm predicting that we probably will be out. However, one of the things I have been advocating and the president of the 420 Clinic have been advocating is what's called a 10 and 10 program, that there needs to be 10% or higher CBD products. That's one that's often used for medical purposes, uh, available from every licensed producer. So they have to compete amongst themselves to placate the medical patients. And that 10% of their product has to be there for the medical patients in the first place. So I've been speaking to a lot of licensed producers. We're getting a great response from them just to ensure it because again we are here first and foremost as a clinic for the medical patients anything that comes afterwards is simply just up in the air but we want to make sure that you know all the people out there who are using this recreationally do not smoke or eat up all the product and we don't have it there for our our patients so that's one of my biggest advocacy points right now is ensuring that the medical patients do have enough supply going into legalization because they built they built this whole thing on their backs like what's the point of neglecting them at the last moment it's not ethical so yeah Douglas Mitchell, uh, Dr. Abiola, I'm surprised that you didn't mention the impact of uh, marijuana use on uh, on uh, Alzheimer's. Okay. There was an interesting article in uh, Mind Over Matter, which came with the Globe list this week, which I read in detail, and it gave a lot of indication, although the research is comparatively early, mm-hmm. that there are definite uh, signs that uh, it may become a routine t- treatment, not only in the treatment of, but maybe even in the prevention of uh, Alzheimer's. 
So could you elaborate on oh, that yes. a little? Great question. You've really done your research. This is very recent uh, studies that have come out in this respect. Now, one of the things with CBD, that non-euphoric uh, form, and even THC, is that they have neuroprotective qualities. The myelin sheath, what protects our nerve cells in our brains, actually respond very, very, very uh, strongly to THC and CBD. Uh, and in, they're, again, they're anti-inflammatory. So a lot of the issues with something like Alzheimer's or Lewy body dementia is that there's inflammation and it causes what's called encephalopathy. And CBD has been proven in certain situations to slow that down. And some people think it could even reverse it. It's new. Uh, it's really exciting. And I hope that it does go that way. But we've had a lot of, let's say, nurses. I spoke with the uh, Canadian Orthopedic Nurses Association uh, who have found that the patients who are using cannabis uh, for, let's say, sleep aids uh, who have Alzheimer's tend to be a lot uh, slower in their progression down the disease. So I'm glad that you brought that up. That's some burgeoning research that's really interesting. Uh, I like to think that it's going in a good path as I keep up with it, uh, but there's been some good evidence that it can help uh, with neuroprotection and things like Alzheimer's. So thank you very much for that question. It's great. Ma'am, yes. My name is Patricia Boswell. Um, my experience with marijuana <coughs> has been related to uh, my daughter having MS. Okay. And for 16 years before she passed away, I was intensely involved with an MS society. Pretty well every one of those people, and of course it's mostly women with the MS, mm -hmm. uh, said that marijuana did far more for them than all the new state-of-the-art drugs and, which had terrible side effects. Yep. But they also emphasized, and at this time I was living in BC, so they know a lot about marijuana up there, <laughs> that uh, there are many different kinds of marijuana which you... You briefly addressed at the beginning, mm -hmm. but one one leaf or so would be very beneficial for somebody. Another one would find another one work better. When the government opened up their huge um, uh, Canadian Shield place where they developed all the marijuana, they all signed up for this and they said it was useless. So mm. that, that what was so? Can you explain a bit more about the different varieties and do they? Are some better for MS, some better for Lewy bodies, as you mm -hmm. just mentioned? Yeah. Uh, sure. So, ag again, uh, if just to go back to kind of what I said, all of cannabis is a plant. There's indica and sativas with different uh, responses. And then in each one, there's different strains. So think of it as like different subclasses of each one. They have different terpenes. And these are little chemicals that are found in it that give it kind of different uh, attributes. So certain people will get a better response with one strain over another strain. That's absolutely true. In terms of people saying, I went to a, a Canadian grower and all of it was just nonsense, it didn't work. I think a lot of that relates to what I was mentioning as uh, public versus private. It tends to be that if it is publicly owned, there is no variety. So somebody like, let's say, uh, the people who are working in an MS society who need to have variety to find out exactly what variation works for them might only have two or three types. And what if you don't fall into a responsive group for those two or three types? You're left out in the cold. And this is one reason why I think the private sector, uh, who will be able to actually meet the deadline next year, needs to actually be utilized. Because they tend to go more for variety and see what their customers want to have. And again, if I'm emphasizing, which I do, that they protect the medical patients first and foremost, they will have access to all the variety that we were able to have in Canada, rather than one or two strains with THC or CBD, which is generally what happens with uh, government control. So this is why I'm a huge advocate of the private sector, even though I work uh, with a lot of doctors and things and doesn't really pertain to me, but I think the private sector needs to do it. Um, 
in that same respect, again, everyone is different. Different people respond to different things, different THC, CBD, terpenoid, flavonoid levels, uh, whether or not it's an oil or if it's the dry product they're smoking, all of these things are relevant. So you, you actually hit it right on the head. What works for some person is not going to work for another one, but there are general trends for each. And if you, if you grab my card, which is out there, just for everybody, I'm going to put a little bit more, uh, I'd love to give you some counsel on which ones should be used for every specific ailment. Thank you. Thank you for that question. It was great. Bev Mendel-Hatherstone. <clears throat> Thank you very much for your very informative talk. Okay, um, my, it, it seems that the reason for legalizing marijuana is to keep it out of, <clears throat> take it out of the hands of the um, organized crime. Sure. And um, this is sort of a little segue from your, your answer to my question about schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. um, if, we're, if we're trying to keep this out of the hands of organized crime, it seems to me that we that the government will probably try to um, initially have low levels of um, THC in the marijuana, which would not keep it out of the hands of organized crime because people would want to have a higher, a, a better hit, a higher hit. So as I mentioned to you previously in our, in our uh, talk, I wonder about the idea of having graduated levels of THC at the clinics with graduated costs associated to the THC levels, mm -hmm. and a graduated system of age so that the younger people are, can only buy certain levels, or if they've got these first-degree relatives with uh, schizophrenia, they can only buy certain levels. But as you get older, you could buy higher levels, and it would simply cost more money. Mm -hmm. Now, just to answer your question, right now, uh, something that, let's say, is a 5% THC compound is going to be way cheaper than one that's 30, uh, just because of uh, how intensive it is to grow something that's a 30% as opposed to a 5%. So I think the, the free market has actually solved that. What you have, okay. are advocating, though, for the uh, graded tiers is actually something, as I told you, I've never heard before. Like, I talk about cannabis all day, and that's the first time I've actually ever heard that situation there. And I think that's actually really uh, something they need to uh, think about. I think they really do need to think about that. Um, Having it be graded in that way, I think, would be good. If you want to have something that's over 20% THC, you need to be over the age of 25. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, if you grab my card, I think we should chat, because I think that's something that should be given to MLA's, uh, the cannabis secretariat, that they can at least mull over in the next little while, because I think that's a good idea. And is there... Is I'm getting some feedback, I'm sorry. And is there uh, research evidence to support that? To support that that would help? or yes. Uh, not that I've seen. I don't know of any place that's actually instituted that type oh, of tiered... Sorry. Uh, sorry, my question wasn't clear. Is there research evidence to support that um, a certain beyond a certain age, it's okay to have 20%? Okay. Uh, the only risk that I have actually seen demonstrated... like uh, People will often say things like the developing brain, the developing brain, and I understand their concerns, but uh, we have GABA receptors and nicotinic receptors, uh, and we're not keeping it, so you need to be 25 to smoke. 25 to have a beer. We're using a different uh, criteria for cannabis. I understand that completely, but it's the young people who are using it at the age of uh, 13, 15, have actually demonstrated a much higher risk of things like anxiety and depression when they're past the age of 21. That is actually demonstrated, and we need to be quite aware of that. That being said, we're not going to advocate or sell uh, anything to anybody who is 15 or 13. So it's kind of a weird conundrum that we're put in, uh, but the people who are at risk for this are not going to have access to cannabis in the first place. But thank you very much for your question. Hi, my name is Carol Vedras. Um, I was wondering about um, cannabis, uh, the um, 
marijuana and hemp mm -hmm. uh, for us folks who have some heart problems and okay. are on blood thinners. Okay. Does um, that affect the blood thinning properties? It depends on if the, uh, the medication you're using for blood thinning is methylated, because that means your liver is going to have to process it to something else. Uh, that being said, another risk for people who have uh, blood thinners that are using it is uh, blood pressure. What is your blood pressure? Because if it's too low, there could be problems. So just for a little bit of physiology here, every one of our blood vessels has something called an intima. And the intima is actually smooth muscle. And if you remember from my talk, one of the side effects of using CBD is muscle relaxation, which is good if you have something like MS or uh, myotonic dystrophy. But if you don't, it could actually make your blood vessels expand a little bit. And when your blood vessels expand, your blood pressure goes down. So there's a risk of people getting dizzy. There's a risk of... Uh, somebody feeling nauseous if it, they react way too strongly to CBD. So that's going to be my biggest concern if somebody is using blood thinners. What is your resting blood pressure? And then also, is the medication you're taking methylated? Okay, and also um, with um, cannabis, mm -hmm. the hemp as opposed to marijuana. Uh -huh. Some hemp has very little THC. Some of it has like zero, yep. So zero. Mm -hmm. So it would be just used as a, an anti-inflammatory? Good question. Now, this is one that I've, I've had some debates with uh, people about, and I got into like the actual science about it. So the difference between hemp, like hemp oil, let's say, and cannabis oil would be this. If you're looking for something like CBD, the, the concentration of it in hemp is 25 parts per million. So out of a million parts, 25 will actually be active CBD. With CBD oil, it's 25%. It's way higher. And again, our body is littered in CB2 receptors for CBD. So if you're using hemp, it's really using uh, CBD. It's watered down and diluted so strongly, you're not really going to get a response. We've had people come in and say, I've used hemp for years. It's not going to work. And they realize hemp is very different than CBD oil. So hemp can be used as a dietary supplement. It can be used for omega-3s, 6s, and 9s. But if you actually want to get the positive effects, you should be using uh, CBD oil more so than hemp. Okay. And as cannabis, then, if, we, if you start on cannabis mm -hmm. or... or marijuana. Sure. Um, is it addicting and how quickly? No. Uh, so 9% and that's just for substance use disorder. Like are you forming a habit? Uh, in terms of addiction, uh, physical addiction is where you find somebody having a seizure because they haven't had it or climbing up the walls or sweating or having a physical effect. Cannabis does not do that. And I'll tell you why. So let's take nicotine, nicotinic receptors or opiate receptors we have in our brain. When we fill them up, our body goes, you're filling up too many. It gets rid of them. It's called down regulation. And this is why you can find people using more and more and more of something as they go on and as they get dependent. CB1 receptors that respond to cannabis in our brains do not do this. This is why you'll never find somebody going, if I don't have my cannabis, I'm going to die. You know what I mean? But you can find people who say that for coffee or nicotine. CB1 receptors don't work that way. You know, let alone something like pain pills where they will actually go into, like, full medical distress. So cannabis works in a completely different way. It's quite an anomaly that we have. Thank, thank you. Can we go to the next questioner just so we take enough time for everybody in that lineup behind you? No worries. You get back in the line if you like. Hi, I'm Ian Hurdle. Hello. Uh, I've, uh, pres I'll bring it up high. Better? I've prescribed uh, marijuana successfully over the years, nice. particularly people with chronic pain and Good. arthritis. They've often found for themselves. Uh, just as a disclosure, I'm now officially retired, so you can't ask me for a prescription. <laughs> I do have a concern, yep. and that is pregnant women. Oh, yes. And there's people now using it for their nausea, 
But I'm concerned about the high-level recreational users that are pregnant, don't know they're pregnant, and are we opening another can of worms here like fecal alcohol syndrome? That, this is an excellent question. Thank you very much for asking that. Uh, so when I say that cannabis can be used, and I, I hope, I, I really wish, I want this gentleman to listen because he's asked such a great question. When I talked about hyperemesis or nausea, I did not mean hyperemesis gravidum, so uh, vomiting or nausea from pregnancy. Uh, cannabis should be considered a teratogen, which, as this gentleman, of course, knows, means that it should not be mixed with something like pregnancy at all. I've never advocated that it should never be used because we don't know the effects until something is confirmed safe. It should never be used by somebody who is pregnant. That being said, we do need to be aware of people who are not aware that they're pregnant and are using cannabis. Uh, I think this is just like with alcohol, the first 28 days of pregnancy, someone might not know they're pregnant but could still be using it, and those are the times in the developing uh, child that they're most sensitive to it. So that is, this is a huge problem, but people just need to be educated to know it should not be used for nausea for pregnancy by any means and in any way, even things like you know, heaven forbid, smoking or any medication, we don't know the effect. Uh, and people need to be educated enough to know that uh, in the similar fashion, they should not be using it if there's even a risk of them becoming pregnant. But thank you very much for your question. That was excellent. So it is a teratogen. Never let anybody use it when they're pregnant, please. Sir. Hi, my name is Henning Mundell. And I'm a retired plant breeder, 10 years in the past. Nevertheless, that gives you perspective where my question's coming from. Uh, one is... Now or into, I have sort of three that fit together. Sure. Uh, one is now in Canada or into the future, do you see most of the production in greenhouses or actually in protected fields? Mm-hmm. Two, um, is the breeding of the varieties within the species mm-hmm. done mainly in the private sector now or in the public sector? And if so, where? That's really two. And three is actually the interspecies crosses between indica and sativa. Uh Is that readily done? Oh, yes. Uh, So I'll I'll work backwards. Hybrids, yes. Hybrids are the biggest thing. So you want to get the benefits of sativa without the side effects of it, that being sedation. You want to get the benefits of sativa without the opposite. So there is a lot of crossbreeding. We do have a huge hybrid model out there. In fact, there's uh, sterile hybrids that people have been using, which have even completely different effects. So this is just to emphasize the amount of variety we have. So that's a great question. Uh, The second one you asked, I believe, was whether or not it would be uh, grown outdoors or in greenhouses. Both. Both is is a huge thing right now. Uh, One of the mandates from Bill C-45 is that every person, every Canadian, is actually permitted to grow four plants for themselves in their own home. So it... Public versus private, and uh, the variety that we could get from each one. Oh, who's involved? Okay, so Health Canada has made what's called licensed producers. So certain companies are under these very strict rules. Uh, every single batch needs to be tested 20, 22 times, and they uh, actually have to build out their facility first. They have to pay like $20 million, and then they can just begin to grow. So they're held under really strict conditions, and they are public. So it's pri- – uh, sorry, so it's uh, – pardon me, they're public. Uh, they're private. They're private entities. So the government gives them the regulations through Health Canada and the Canadian government, and then they go about it in a private manner. But it's extremely expensive to become a licensed producer. So thank you for your questions. All great. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Betty Hardy, and I'd like to ask if cannabis is good for depression. 
it can be good for certain depressive features. Uh, I think people need to be very careful uh, when they say I'm going to be using this for depression because let's go back to the indica versus sativa. One is sedating, one is uplifting. If somebody, let's say, has an issue involving depressive features where they find themselves sleeping too much or not having any energy, they shouldn't be using indica, which actually makes them sleepier Uh, If they were insomniac, that'd be a little bit different. So people need to be very careful of that. Of course, the age that someone uses it is very important. This is why, again, under no circumstances, children should be using it because there's actually higher incidence of depression if they use it before age 15. Uh, So, again, keep it out of the hands of of children. Uh, Going back to anandamide, it increases mood just because of the way it can regulate things like serotonin. So there have been a lot of people who have got over uh, bouts of depression by using uh, cannabis, particularly sativa strains. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Great questions, you guys. This is amazing. Like, I've talked to so many people, and they don't know a fraction of what you guys have been able to ask me. This is wonderful. Sir. Uh, doctor, my name's Roger Pike. I've been using oil for about three years now. Okay. Um, the problem I have is there's not enough CBD content. Okay. Um, even with a 1% THC, I still get, I get high because I have to take so much of it to control my pain. Right. Okay. How long will it take before they get higher CBD content? Now, that depends on which licensed producer you're with. Uh, right now. Um, I know if you're going to go with someone like Candy Med, I can actually write these down for you and if I see afterwards. Someone like Candy Med, they actually specialize in oils and they've never been out uh, in like a year of any form of CBD product. Uh, even ones like Medrelief, Aurora, which is actually Alberta based. Uh, Tweed has revamped what they're doing and now they have uh, constant streams of uh, CBD oils. But uh, there's certain licensed producers that specialize in it, so it depends on which one that you're registered with. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I'd be more than happy to give you some suggestions on which ones don't run out of CBD. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dr. Abiola, Art Sanford, and um, first of all, congratulations on an excellent presentation. Well, thank you. Very good. No, and easy. So yeah. my, my question is, well, first of all, when I look at we're moving into the legalization of marijuana, mm-hmm. uh, and the, if the politicians and the police think all the private uh, growers now are going to roll over and play dead, they're dreaming. They're still going to be there, and with very high levels or very different levels of, of the product. In your situation in the health field, are you going to be locked into the government's pattern of the strength, or will you have variances in that? Because there's going to be variances on the street are quite wide. Sure. I think you brought up a great point. I think if they realize that like dried or oil cannabis is not available as a, uh, a market, uh, they could go into things like shatter, which is like a, a very concentrated synthetic form. Uh, I think that's a great thing to bring up. Uh, The black market is not simply just going to roll over. They're going to find something else. Um, But I don't think that we should enable them by making it so like 18 to 25 they have full access to or by not having enough accessibility of the product to uh, people who are seeking this out recreationally. So it is going to starve them out, and it's going to take quite a bit of time. I've spoken with some of the administrators from Denver, which is one of the first states to uh, legalize cannabis, and they said it took about a couple of years. It wasn't overnight. So you've brought up a good point about these... uh, nefarious parts of our society right now, not just rolling over and saying, close the doors, business is up. But after a while, we will eventually choke them out, which I think is the goal. Did I get all of your question, too? I think you had another. Okay. My name is Mark Edel. Now, in addition to increasing appetite, the munchies, Mm -hmm. apparently THC is supposed to increase sexual arousal. That is is also, there's been a lot of evidence for that too, yeah. Yeah, and I'm wondering, should it, uh, will it be replacing Viagra or should it be used with Viagra? So, there's, (laughs) it's a question of the night, well well done. 
So uh, there's certain companies that have actually developed ones that are specifically for sexual activity. Uh, some of them are topical, some of them are just uh, capsules or just the same uh, regular products. So people have looked into which strains are actually able to promote things like, like sexual arousal, and they're trying to capitalize on it. So one of them, I think the first one was called Foira, F-O-I-R-A. Uh, from Tweed, and this one is made specifically for that. But many different companies are trying to capitalize on this because uh, for the side effects, when they try to do the, uh, uh, the clinical trials, people will say, yes, it helped with my pain, but also, you know, there was a huge sexual advantage with it. So they're trying to target those side effects and figure out which strains are doing them the best. So, wow. It, will it re replace sildenafil or Viagra? I can't tell you, but uh, they're trying. They're trying. Hi, do you have a, a book out like uh, Marijuana for Dummies or I, something like that? I might, I might make one. I might make one, depending what you happens. You should write one in layman language. <laughs> depending on what happens with the regulation, if I still, uh, I'm working with 420, I might write a book. I've learned quite a bit, so it's possible. Yes, my name is Terry Shillington. Uh, thank you very much for a great presentation, thank and you you've again. obviously got people engaged. Um, I wonder if you would say more about the physical side effects or, uh, yeah, you've spoken to the, to the uh, mental health side effects mm -hmm. of uh, use of cannabis. Yep. Uh, I'm wondering if you say more about physical side effects, uh, negative physical side effects of, of particularly intense use of, of cannabis. Uh, almost anything we eat has negative side effects sure. if, we, if we overdose on it. And I, Great. I'd like to hear that. Sure. Um, so one of the most common side effects people have is called acute conjunctivitis, so red eyes. Uh, people often have if they're under the influence of THC. Xerostomia, which means like dry mouth. They might find they need to be hydrating a little bit more. Uh, over sedation. So someone could find themselves being really tired, and certain people, oh, I'll bring up a really good one too. Certain people can find themselves uh, with daytime hypersomnia, so they get a little bit like sedated during the evening. Uh, the big one I want to bring up, and this happens in about, this is what my, stu my personal study with our patients uh, has shown, about 1.5% of the time, so it's very, very rare, is something that's called cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. So I mentioned the brainstem, how the part that controls nausea is there, but everyone's brain is a little bit different. So if they have this uh, anatomical variation, they'll find that after a couple weeks of using it, and this is why I follow up with all of my patients, they'll find that they all of a sudden got immediately sick. Like they'll say, I started, I started throwing. Again, this is 1.5%, so just don't worry about it. But they'll say, yeah, I just started throwing up after a week of using it. And they said, so my next step was, because I was nauseous, I ended up using more. And it's, the first thing they were supposed to do was stop using it. <laughs> the way that area of their brain reacted to it actually causes this syndrome. So that's another side effect people do need to be aware of. Uh, let me think of a few other ones that people could have. Uh, Excuse me. Yes. Um, I was also asking about long-term usage. Oh, long-term so usage, Any, me. any yeah. evidence over 10 or 20 years, mm -hmm. what happens to the body? Uh, there hasn't been anything to that effect uh, for long-term use. The, most of the stuff for long-term use has been if they start early, if they start at age 13, 15, uh, in terms of higher rates of depression or other things like that. In terms of like uh, chronic use, what are the effects, uh, there hasn't really been anything to that effect. Because, again, it's been very recent that people have actually been allowed to study this. So no one can say what happens over the last 20 years because you couldn't do a cannabis study 20 years ago. So, but thank you very much for that question. Yes, um, my name is Kathleen Clements. Hello. Um, my husband has rheumatoid arthritis quite severely. Mm -hmm. He's on opioids. Okay. And if he were to want to change to cannabis, mm -hmm. 
would he be advised to come to someone like you with that expertise mm -hmm. rather than go through his family doctor or through his family doctor to you mm -hmm. to be properly assessed? So this is one thing that the uh, medical community is kind of, I'm not going to say drop the ball on, but they could have done better. Uh, many doctors understand that their patients could be using this, but they don't have the proper background. Like I was lucky enough to be focused on interventional pain management where they taught me a lot about this in the U.S., uh, so what I would say is they should approach us. We can connect them with a the physician, or the physician can connect them with us so we can work in tandem, collaborative care. So the doctor can say, I know this is good for you, so we're going to give you the prescription. And then the 420 clinic will advise you on what exactly you should be using and how to get your product. So just so everyone knows, just to follow up your question, uh, what tends to happen is the patient will get the prescription. We will register it with a licensed producer, so those companies that create the product. And it actually comes directly to your door. Some people have been really surprised about that. There's times people will order it uh, when they're valid with this, and they say, uh, yeah, someone knocked on my door like five hours later with the product there. I don't know if it's mine. I'm like, it's, it's, it's yours. They just made it very, very quick. So, yes, uh, I think that he should be speaking with his family physician. If the family physician is not... Uh, uh, willing or even able to cooperate, we will connect him with a physician who will, and we will get him his product because he has a clinical indication for it. Can you s explain again who we... Who uh, the, four, the 420 clinic. clinic. The 420 clinic will. And that is... Uh, so this is the company that I'm working for. I'm the medical director of this outfit. Uh, so we have a location in Lethbridge. Lethbridge is actually our second biggest patient base, which is amazing. Uh, and then also in Calgary, we work with over, uh, just to your example of certain family physicians... Uh, want to just kind of uh, defer this. We work with over 210 different doctors in Calgary. 210. So we will, we will help you. We will help you. Leopard is a little bit of a bottleneck because we just started here and everyone tried to rush to get us at once. But in Calgary, we can get you even in, in the same day. So, yeah. So 420 Clinic, uh, I have cards out there. Feel free to check out the website. We have uh, patient advocates, collaborative care. We have, and again, everything is 100% free. It will not cost you one dime to see us. Your product you have to buy, but... Our services, in terms of getting it to you, is completely free. No charge. We'll take these last two questions here. Go ahead. Uh, regarding cost, uh, uh, what, what's, what's, uh, what's the cost of uh, these treatments? And is it on, is Blue Cross covering uh, medical marijuana now? Certain insurance companies do. I forgot which ones. Blue Cross does not. Uh, Veterans Affairs does completely. Um, the cost of it is generally, I would say, between... Four and twelve dollars a gram. You can just go for the price and for each one. Uh, so a gram is a lot. <laughs> People will think like a gram, that's nothing, but a, a gram will last you quite a bit. So it's it's quite cheaper than a lot of other medications, particularly prescription medications. Uh, oils tend to be about a hundred dollars per bottle, but the bottles last uh, quite a while, quite a while. If you're using half a mil a day and the bottle is ninety mils, like it's going to last you quite a bit. So yes, sir. Just to put something in perspective, 49 years ago I sat in a room in Montreal with 2,400 other people and Justice uh, Ledan was there and gave a report that he wanted the marijuana to be legalized. No. We got there. One quick question. Yes. Um, Sevenoberg Council of Public Affairs. I've 420 clinic, there are other options as well, though, right? Oh, yeah, sure. There's, Natural there's, health services? Yep. We don't want to send everyone... Oh, no, no, no. And that's not what I'm advocating. It's not. No. Uh, there, there, I just want to put down all of the information that's out there. Um, and I'm just going to let you know just about, like, you know, who our average patient is, just to kind of break down those paradigms. But I'm not, I'm not trying to say you must go with us. There are options. There are a lot of different options out there. Please do your research. Make sure that they're proper. By that, I mean uh, there's five different points that everyone should have. 
I uh, wish everyone could be taking notes. Just for anyone to know that's completely legal, I would hate for somebody to be put at risk for somebody who uh, misled them. But one, you need to have a valid and uh, a legitimate prescription from a medical professional, like a doctor, an actual medical doctor, not a naturopath, not an acupuncturist, a doctor, a do- registered doctor in Alberta. Number two, it needs to be registered with a licensed producer, one that will send the product in the mail, one that is registered by Health Canada. So if you go on their website and they have cookies there or they have you know, gummy bears, it's not legitimate. It has to be from Health Canada. It needs to come in the mail, through certified mail, and you need to have your prescription updated every three months. There are some groups that will do all of those except for one. Like there's some places who will say like, oh, no, here's, here's your prescription. They'll do everything, but they won't follow up with you in every three months. Or they'll pre-authorize you. They won't screen you for what you have. So they're actually putting you at risk. Because let's say they just said, hey, here's your prescription, go for it. And you were using THC where you should have been using CBD or vice versa. You're throwing away your money. So make sure whoever you're going with is reputable. Make sure that the people who are advising you know their stuff. Please make sure of that. It's not just somebody who started doing this the day before and knows nothing and is moonlighting as a specialist. So uh, make sure to do due diligence. Of course, we're not the only game in town. We're not the only game in Alberta. Uh, Just make sure to, like, I hope this shed a lot of light on what you should be looking for and just a little bit about cannabis. But uh, yes, it was not my intention to say it's only us. I tried to keep it to a minimum of promoting the company. Didn't even put it up on the thing. So yes, just please, please be aware of that and uh, do your due diligence. Go ahead, Bev. Lathurstone. <clears throat> I'm a member of the SACPA board, and just to mention that we do not promote uh, any particular um, viewpoint. We do not promote the 420 clinic. Good. It is uh, We simply bring people here for information and for animation mm-hmm. and to create discussion around issues. Good. I can agree with that. And that was very well said because we were very well informed today and well fed. And would you join me in thanking him one more time? Oh, thank you. Thank you, all of you.